book of Romans, chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating everything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. And who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord, Also, those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord, and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue give praise to God. So then, each of us will be accountable to God. So, are you going to do Sober October? Have you seen the adverts? Or maybe we could defer it and do Dry January instead. Are you going to give up red meat for Advent? Or maybe next year go vegan for Lent? I know Dawn did that a couple of years ago. She swore never again. How's that diet going? Are you getting your five a day? Are you keeping your carbs under control? What does yourfitnesspal.com tell you? How's your resting heart rate? Are you tempted by that new Apple Watch? You know, the one with the updated health and fitness monitoring. Are you getting enough sleep? There's an app for that, you know. To tell you when it's time for a duvet day. Is your life in balance? Are you happy? Is there enough hygge in your life? We have, as a society, become somewhat obsessed with our quality of life, and not without some very good reasons. The obesity crisis, as it is called, is a ticking time bomb of hospitalization waiting to go off. The NHS tell us that one in four of us is overweight and that we have the highest level of obesity in Western Europe ahead of countries such as France and Germany and Spain and Sweden, making us the so-called fat man of Europe. Our sedentary lifestyles and unhealthy diets are increasing our propensity to diabetes, heart disease and cancer, with all of the personal and economic costs involved in treating those. The general stagnation of wages and the seemingly never-ending rise in housing costs 
has played a contributing factor in this, with more and more people treating themselves in relatively cheap but unhealthy ways to compensate for the lack of overall resources uh, to take perhaps more strategically healthy decisions. And it is a well-established fact that childhood obesity is a key factor in adult obesity and that children in economically deprived communities are far more likely to be overweight. This is not just a problem of personal choices, it's a structural and systemic problem that is directly related to the social inequalities that exist within society. Professor Susan Jebb from Oxford University comments that obesity is a consequence of the abundance and convenience of modern life as well as the human body's propensity to store fat. And she goes on to note that the situation in which food is relatively readily available for most people has arrived in the blink of an eye in evolutionary terms. We are just not equipped either personally or structurally, to deal with the seemingly unending availability of cheap and yummy sugar and fat. And then there's rising stress levels that come with the combination of financial insecurity and poor physical health. We live with an ever-increasing expectation that those who have jobs will put in longer and longer hours. And we battle with a culture of 24-7 availability where we answer emails in the middle of the night and bury our heads in our phones when we're on holiday. While those at the lower end of the income spectrum either struggle to find work at all or are taking two or even three low-paid jobs to generate enough income just to pay bills and rent. And all of this stress leads to family pressure, relationship breakdown and time off work, with 11.7 million working days lost due to stress-related illness in 2015 to 16. There is just too much to do and too little time to do it and not enough resources to do it properly. And what, you might well ask, has all this got to do with God? Why has Simon started his sermon with a mini-lecture on public health? Well, here's the thing. I think this is a deeply spiritual issue. And in my observation, it's not one that we usually speak about in church. I mean, just out of interest, when was the last time you heard a sermon on health and fitness? Sermons on prayer? Yep. Loving one another? Yes. Forgiving one another? Of course. Working for peace? Absolutely, that was what today's sermon was going to be about because it's Peace Sunday and then I felt led to go in a different direction. So if it all feels a little bit disjointed, I'm sorry about that, but I planned the service when I thought I was preaching about peace and then this happened. When did you last hear a sermon about caring for your body? I think we too often confine our Christian faith to our so-called spiritual lives. And in doing so, we deny the reality of the fact that we are embodied beings. There was an ancient Greek philosophy called dualism, which asserted that the physical world, the one we can see and touch and taste, was merely a shadow of a more real, truly spiritual world where the imperfections of this world cease to exist. So, the Simon of this physical world, with all his flaws and imperfections, surely not, I hear you cry, 
would be understood as merely a shadow of the true, perfected, spiritualized Simon that exists in the spiritual world beyond. Well, this dualism was developed by the ancient Greek philosophers of Plato and Aristotle, and it was the dominant worldview at the time Christianity developed. So the early Christians, you know, those who wrote the New Testament and would have read it, found themselves in a world where the split between the physical and the spiritual was an accepted part of the world as they understood it. Interestingly, the Jews had a different perspective. They tended to view the spiritual and the physical as more of a unity, with both revealing something of the nature and glory of God. In the Jewish understanding, worship and prayer were not attempts to kind of reach across a void between the physical world we inhabit and the spiritual world which is beyond us but rather worship and prayer in the Jewish understanding were the conscious opening up of human life to the experience of the God who is ever-present in and through all things. So the Jews had an idea that God is present in and through us at all times. But that's not the dominant worldview of the Greek and Roman world in which the New Testament was written. So when we come to the New Testament, we can trace something of this difference of opinion as to the relationship between the spiritual and the physical. Sometimes it can seem when we read the Bible as if God is just beyond us, and we can only reach him through engaging our higher, more spiritual abilities. But sometimes it can seem as if God is thoroughly with us, at home in the frailty and fragility of our lives. However, once we move kind of beyond the time of the New Testament into the second and third centuries and beyond, the philosophy of dualism really takes hold in Christianity. And it largely eclipses the more holistic approach to life that came through the Jewish tradition. So the view firmly develops really within Christianity that the physical world is kind of secondary, a bit shabby, compared with that which can be experienced by the mind or the spirit. And we end up with a kind of Christianized version of the classical Greek position, where humans are seen as a combination of soul and body, arranged in a hierarchy with soul ranking ahead of body. So forms of Christianity emerged, particularly within the monastic tradition, where people would deny or neglect their bodies in order to focus on or develop or perfect their spiritual side. Now, of course, in a pre-antibiotic world of disease, with death and suffering constant companions through life, you can see why it would be so attractive to people to believe that they could transcend their mortal life by focusing on the eternal, perfected state of their souls. And interestingly, this dualism then finds its way into post-enlightenment philosophy to the extent that it is still very much with us today. I'm not actually going to blame Descartes for this, but I do think we can point the finger at him as the one primarily responsible. 
You remember Descartes' famous dictum, I think, therefore I am. Well, this takes us to the heart of his perspective, which is that the mind, the higher mind, with its consciousness and self-awareness, can in some way be philosophically distinguished from the physicality of the brain and the body that it sits in. In other words, Descartes asserted that the grey, squishy stuff in our skulls is merely where the higher mind sits in our bodies. And according to him, our true being, our true identity as humans, is more than the sum of our neurons. And a lot of science fiction, and indeed science, has taken this as its inspiration. As people have wrestled with the idea that our minds can in some way transcend our bodies. From cryogenic freezing, to Frankenstein's monster, to Data the android in Star Trek. The question of whether our bodies are inherent to our humanity is a recurring theme. And even in contemporary medicine, the split between psychoanalytical and pharmaceutical treatments remains very much with us to this day. Sometimes the order of the hierarchy gets reversed, with the body finding itself ahead of the soul in order of priority, but the underlying dualistic split between body and soul, or mind, or whatever, remains. Are we body, or are we soul? Are we physical, or are we spiritual? Are we human, or are we dancer? Some of you will have got that. Those who didn't, Apologies. Should we pay attention primarily to our minds or to our bodies? Well, in a sense, I think we have here the basis for the whole split in contemporary culture between science and faith. If you believe that consciousness is an emergent quality of physical evolution, then you may be tempted to disregard as pre-scientific any talk of the spiritual, the numinal, the transcendent. On the other hand, if you believe that we are divinely created beings made in the image of God, then you may be tempted to disregard as unspiritual any talk of evolution or indeed medicalized treatment. In a nutshell, if you're unwell, would you go first to your pastor for prayer or to your doctor for medicine? Now, of course, it's a false dichotomy. The scientist ignores the spiritual to their loss and the theologian ignores the physical to their cost. But it is a deeply ingrained dichotomy which we have inherited as the result of 2,000 years of cultural and religious dualism. So it takes a bit of unpicking. And here I want to return to a comment I made earlier, which is that we are embodied beings. It is simply not authentic to the broad witness of Scripture to try and separate our souls from our bodies. I do not believe, for example, that when this body dies, my immortal soul will be set free to fly away to glory by and by, oh my. I am me. Soul and body in unity. We need to recover something of the Jewish understanding of the unity between the physical and the spiritual. Both reveal the nature and glory of God, and nowhere is this more clear than in the life of Jesus, God in human form. 
Belief in the divinity of Jesus is not some abstract theological point which is increasingly less relevant to our scientific understanding of the world. Rather, it is a crucial challenge to those practices which would seek to separate the spiritual from the physical by perpetuating the ancient philosophy of dualism. The idea of God with us in the person of Christ tells us that you cannot touch the human without also touching the divine. You can no more treat the body in isolation from the spirit than you can purely transcend the physical to live entirely in the spiritual world. The person who fasts for too long will starve to death, regardless of the state of heightened consciousness they may have achieved along the way. And the person who attends only to the body and its needs will lose touch with the mystery of existence that calls us beyond ourselves and into works of love and selflessness and service. Many of you will know that I use language of spiritual warfare extremely sparingly. I am not the kind of Christian who sees demons around every corner, but I do sometimes think that it's appropriate to name evil and in the naming of evil to seek to disempower it. And there are many demons in our world that slip through unnamed and which therefore continue to exercise their hold over the lives of those they are seeking to destroy. So I want to name some demons and give us permission to talk about them and hopefully begin to see them exercised from our lives. You have heard, I am sure, of the phrase, the demon drink. And many of us, myself included, know the temptation to drink a little too much and a little too often. Well, there were 339,000 hospital admissions last year related to alcohol consumption. And the stories of those who come through the doors of this church for our Alcoholics Anonymous meetings give testimony to the capacity alcohol has to destroy lives if its consumption is not regulated in some way. And related to alcohol, of course, are other addictive drugs, which can range from tobacco to painkillers to cannabis to other more substantive illegal drugs. And if we think this stuff doesn't happen here, then we're wrong. The cultural acceptability of substance abuse is prevalent, and Christians are not immune. But if we perpetuate the dualistic myth that what we do to our bodies is largely unrelated to our spiritual well-being then we not only give ourselves permission to continue our destructive patterns of behavior, but we deny the image of God in each of us. And what about diet and exercise and weight? I am very aware that I stand on treacherous ground here because I... I'm a relatively slim man, and I do not want in any way to assume any moral high ground. In fact, those of you who have known me for a few years may remember that I used to be several stone bigger than I am now. I uh, ended up losing it after my 40-year-old man health check showed that my cholesterol was significantly higher than it should be. I remember a few years ago walking around the Christian Resources exhibition. Yes, there is indeed such a thing. It's like a trade fair for Christian tat. And there was a, a stall there for an organization who promote healthy living from a Christian perspective. And one of the people passing by remarked scathingly, oh great, so being fat's a spiritual issue now, is it? 
And hearing that really challenged me because I realized that I had been guilty of focusing on my spiritual developments to the neglect of my body. I was going to see my spiritual director, but I wasn't taking regular exercise. My diet had become one of fast, convenient food, consisting mainly of a beer and a burger or steak night at Weatherspoons and the like. Was it any wonder that I was pushing overweight with high cholesterol? And when I go to ministers' meetings and I look around me at my fellow clergy, I see many others are taking the exact same decision. Ministers are all too often overweight. We sit at our desks and we write our sermons and we pray our prayers and we visit the sick and we comfort those who are suffering and we neglect ourselves because we have prioritized the spiritual over the physical. And what has challenged me personally is the realization that this isn't only bad practice, it's bad theology. It's one of those demons we need to name because it is a demon that is killing us. And I think the same applies to stress. I remember my college principal, Brian Hames, a former minister of this church, once saying to us when I was 23 or 4 and sat there in college that many ministers will leave their pastorate due to stress. And he wanted to challenge us to consider the possibility that this is because they are too lazy to take control of their own diaries. It's a provocative proposal, but there is some truth in it. All of us struggle to take control of our lives. And it's so much easier to allow other people to set our agendas for us. And a church like Bloomsbury, where there is so much going on, will suck every moment that each of us is prepared to give it. There's always more to do. And the need is so great. Just go and stand on the street and have a look and you'll see it. And then we factor in the demands of our families, our professions, and our other commitments, and suddenly we find that we're no longer in control of our own lives. It's hard, disciplined work saying no to people. And it's doubly difficult to take back control, that which we've already handed over to others. And yet if we don't, we simply abdicate responsibility, and ultimately we pay the cost in our own lives. We cannot separate ourselves off like this. The big demon here is that old devil dualism that has been with us for the last 2,000 years of Christianity. We are embodied beings. We cannot be divided up into fragmented parts because if we do, we just break. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, we cease to be the integrated beings that we are intended to be. We are made in the image of God. We reflect the likeness of his son. And the thing is, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to these challenges. The demons of addiction and obesity and stress will not be exercised with one simple word. And here we need to hear Paul's advice to the Christians in Rome. I'm reading Tom Wright's paraphrase. One person believes it's all right to eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats should not despise the one who does not, and the one who does not should not condemn the one who does, because God has welcomed them. One person reckons one day more important than another. Someone else regards all days as equally important. Each person must make up their own mind. Not everyone will take the same decision. For starters, I'm not convinced that being vegetarian is a sign of weakness. I mean, I don't think I have the strength to give up bacon. Not everyone will become vegan. 
Not everyone will take up swimming or jogging or going to the gym. Not everyone will strategically reduce their working hours so that they get a day or two off a week. Not everyone will take full control of their diary. And it's not our place to judge the decisions of others here. It's certainly not my place to do so. Judge not, lest ye be judged. It's far too easy for us to write our own choices onto the lives of others and then stand in judgment of them when they don't measure up to the standards we've set for ourselves. As Paul puts it, who do you think you are to judge someone else? That is not what we're here to do. But it is our responsibility to ask ourselves where we stand before God on all of this. And it is also our responsibility to stand alongside one another as together we seek to live into being our commitments to love each other. My biggest worry in raising this stuff this morning was that it would generate feelings of guilt or condemnation and that is not what church should be about. My hope is that we can support one another together as we find places for honesty about the struggles that each of us has. And they will be different for each of us. We do not all struggle in the same way. But we do all need to address the struggle of caring for ourselves in both body and spirit because we are made in the image of God and we bear the likeness of Christ. And this is who we are called to be. Together, the body of Christ, made whole in him. Let's pray. God of love, forgive us when we neglect ourselves. Forgive us when we abuse ourselves and hurt ourselves. Whether we do so through neglect or deliberate action, Reach out to us in the pain of our fallenness and our brokenness and restore us to wholeness. May we know integration in our bodies and our spirits that comes from being indwelled by your Holy Spirit. Give us peace, bring us healing, lead us to wholeness. Amen.